0: yeah come get vaccinated
1: <laughs> all right so we're on we're on now so uh, good morning everybody and welcome to another lovely mo- spring monday morning here uh, happy pasquetta buona pasquetta to anybody who's italian out there this is easter monday which is actually rather a big holiday in europe uh here it's just another monday and so we are here to do another coffee chat this week our theme we're going to continue our where in the world series and our theme this week is going to be something that me and Reed and Andrew are gonna work on together. We're calling it Danube Week, where we're going to talk to people who have expertise on every city along the Danube practically, and just get to know uh, that part of the world a little bit, because that is, I have to admit, a little bit outside of my zone. I'm a little more Mediterranean. And uh, so for me, this will be a learning week, which will be a lot of fun. So my guest today is uh, my very longtime friend, Ben Curtis. Uh, ben and I have been friends for what Ben twenty five years, something like that.
0: which is which is which is amazing because we're both only twenty eight. Like, how is it possible?
1: I know we met. We met in in preschool. That's how.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so um, Ben is sort of uh, he's a guide collective member and a tour guide and a writer and uh, he used to be working for what the UN was it?
0: Uh, British government actually working with the British government. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he worked um, worked with British government and did a lot of humanitarian work. He's also written a book on the Habsburgs, which we're going to be discussing in Guide Collective Book Club in a little over an hour. So we're a little short time on our coffee chat today. Um, So Ben, the the topic this week is the Danube. And so can you just tell us a little bit like what cities are even on the Danube? Why is that such an important waterway?
0: Yeah, so the Danube is the only river in Europe, I would guess the world, that actually runs through four national capitals. Now the trivia question would be to anybody who's listening, okay, name them, right? I bet you can, yeah, yeah, do you, you wanna go for it? Okay, what, what do you think are the four? I
1: can think of three. I don't think I can think of the fourth because it's okay. um, Vienna,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Budapest, Bratislava, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Good,
0: them. yeah, it's another B, so Belgrade, Serbia. It also goes right oh. past Belgrade.
1: I that um, I don't know.
0: See that learn something new every day. Um, But so yeah, so it flows through these, these major capital cities through multiple countries. But beyond that, like, the Danube isn't just a river, like it's a cultural zone, right? Like it's literally, I mean, both thinking geographically, but then politically, culturally, like the Danube watershed. It's a whole part of Europe, right? It's Central Europe and it has its own culture and distinctness. And like you said, Sarah, like there's Mediterranean Europe, but there's actually Danube Europe. And it there's these things that that part of Europe shares has in common that are distinctive and and like identifiably, like, oh yeah, I was just in Serbia, which strangely there's a, has a lot in common with just up the river in Hungary and just up the river in Austria, right?
1: Yeah. So I've taken a little bit of a cruise on the Danube. I've done the boat between uh, Vienna and, somewhere <laughs> i can't even remember yeah. it was so long ago but you can take cruises up and down like you don't have to do long ones i just did a trip mm. out to a little okay. village along the danube um, okay. so this week we're going to focus a little bit on each of these cities um, one of the cities i wanted to talk about with you today is budapest because you have a particular expertise but you also focus a lot on eastern europe generally but also the Habsburgs. so how do they tie into that danube region
0: yeah indeed so the Habsburg dynasty, which is the greatest family in European history, um, you know, ruled, was the top family really since the 13th century until they went kaput in 1918. Um, they ruled in Spain, right, too, and the Netherlands, and Italy, and lots of other places. But the kind of core of their domains centered on Vienna was the Danube. In fact, the, one of the names for the Habsburg monarchy, people sometimes call it Austria-Hungary, this kind of stuff. But but one of the names for it is the Danubian domains. And after 1867, Vienna and Budapest were the twin capitals of the Habsburg monarchy, which was the, I forget whether it was the second or third largest state in Europe at that time. So big deal at the time. And the Danube was like one of the things that just united uh, these different bits of this part of the world. Um, and as I said, that that help uh, kind of keep them together and that you can still see uh, the magnificence when you're standing on the banks of the Danube in Budapest.
1: So uh, you've spent some time in Budapest, I imagine, yeah?
0: Yeah, I mean, I lived there quite a while ago now in my younger days, um, but then guide there and travel there and all that good stuff.
1: Uh, my experience with Budapest goes all the way back to 1994, I think it is. Wow. I took a train there with a couple of friends, we were on our doing our backpacking kind of dirty backpacker days. And it mm-hmm. was right after, you know, communism had ended. And it was remarkable taking a train from Vienna into Budapest because it was really like crossing a line and you could see mm-hmm. the light. I mean, I don't know if you remember that, but I remember mm-hmm. feeling like, oh my gosh, I've crossed into the Eastern Bloc because it was just felt gray like there were these big Mm -hmm. ugly apartment blocks everywhere it just had this kind of weird depressing film noir kind of character with all Mm -hmm. these pretty little kind of jewels sort of sprinkled in there but it, it none of those things were really at the time I didn't think like cared for in the same way you saw them in Vienna so my memory of Budapest at least that first trip is that um yeah it was very different from Vienna and uh But of course, the reason I went there and the reason we had so much fun is that it was so cheap. It was so cheap. Like I remember like three girlfriends, we were all super cheap backpackers. We went into this dessert shop next to the cathedral. St. Stephen's, is that right? No, Mm -hmm, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's in in Vienna. Vienna, But there's another St. Stephen's in in Budapest anyway.
1: Yeah, so we went into this like super elegant, like out of a movie sort of pastry shop. And- Mm. We looked at the prices, and each slice of cake was like ten cents.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: my my girlfriends and I literally gorged ourselves on these beautiful pastries. I think we ordered like one of everything in the shop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it's like that anymore, though, is it?
0: <laughs> it's not. It's not like ridiculously cheap, but it it's definitely cheaper than a lot of the Western European capitals. But um, yeah, I mean, Hungary and all those former places behind the Iron Curtain have gotten with the times and and I remember like you my first visit to Budapest was just a few years after the Iron Curtain had fallen and one of the big culture shock things for me in addition to like you said that oh man it's sort of shabbier here it's kind of grayer what happened but it's just the Hungarian language which isn't like anything else anywhere in Europe right like coming from the German lands like at that point I knew German and thank God I did because you could use that to get around because people didn't speak English, right? Like you didn't learn English when you're growing up behind the Iron Curtain. But like Hungarian, if you've ever seen it, you you can like look at like a paragraph and like I cannot make out a single word, right? Whereas German you usually can, Romance languages you can usually figure it out. Sometimes even the Slavic languages you can see, okay, there's that, that. Hungarian, forget about it. So that was total culture shock to me. But I want to say to people, I'm sure there's people listening who've been to Budapest and it's not gray and depressing and shabby and dreary anymore, right? Like it's this absolutely glittering, glamorous European capital, definitely one of the I think most striking cities in Europe.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's changed so much in the past 30 years. It's almost like you could hardly even recognize it. So it's just an Mm -hmm. interesting thing. I think we were very lucky traveling in the 90s, in the early 90s, because Mm -hmm. I went to a bunch of Eastern European countries then just out of curiosity really I mean we were in Poland we were in the Czech Republic we were in in Hungary just because it was so so exotic in the set I don't know if exotic mm-hmm. is the right word but you know what I'm saying it was so different then
0: totally so, and it would have been hard to have gone to those places for for people with like a western passport just a few years before right so it's like suddenly these places opened up and Like there's real gems that were behind the Iron Curtain, which now people just think of as like, okay, it's pretty commonplace to go there, like Krakow or Prague or Budapest or something. But until like the the very end of 1989, forget about just hopping on a train. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go for a weekend break to Budapest. If you were coming from the West, not possible.
1: Yeah, I remember getting on that train in 1994, and we felt like we were doing something wrong. Like we thought we were going to get in trouble getting on that train. And then we thought as soon as we get off it, we'd be like escorted to a Gulag or something. We'd watch too Mm -hmm. many Soviet movies. The funny thing is, I mean, this is just a random thought, but I think about my children now, how they absolutely have no concept of the the kind of Soviet fear that had been instilled Mm -hmm. in us as children. Like they don't get that. And it, it just is. it was such a striking thing back then when I visited yes hi nico hi speaking of children how's it going nico (laughs) you haven't seen nico since he was probably a little bit more like this high i think right my no kidding
0: yeah my god and the and the kitty cats i'm nice it's nice to see the kitty cats uh, hanging out in uh surviving the lockdown too
1: so well nico hasn't been to budapest but i'm sure he will someday
0: (laughs) you gotta go you gotta go nico and i was gonna say so like what you're just saying sarah about like Kids, people, Nico's age, like Nico, you probably don't remember the Iron Curtain, right? Like you have no knowledge of what the Iron Curtain was, do you?
1: I mean, I didn't experience it, but I know yeah. about
0: it. You know about it, okay, right? But the thing that I find is that people who are who lived when the lion when the Iron Curtain existed still have an Iron Curtain in their minds because yeah. they still think of like the former Soviet bloc, the stuff behind the Iron Curtain. They think it was like it's different there, like this is this is a whole other part of the world and then and people who are you know like Nico's age or didn't grow up in that time like they don't have it so much because like it's just part of Europe right like you just you hop over the border and it's no big deal and actually I'm glad I'm, I'm thankful for for people like you Nico who like maybe don't have that iron curtain in your brains because it is just it's just another part of Europe right it's it's had a different history for a couple of decades but it's been, you know, these places have been part of the EU now for, for also like 15 plus years. And they're, they're not that different anymore than Austria or Germany or something like that.
1: Well, and I think it's interesting because <clears throat> people who are like our vintage, you know, Gen, gen Xers, we saw, got to see both sides, you know, but people, right. yeah, like Nico's age, they, they don't really know the difference. And so when you go to someplace, let's say like Vienna, and then you go to Budapest today, can you still feel like there's a difference or is that difference gone or do you think there is something just in the kind of DNA of Budapest that reminds you of the way it was?
0: Yeah that's a great question. Um, You know Austrians are definitely still richer than Hungarians Um, and you'll see I mean Budapest has all sorts of posh shops uh, and you know flashy places but this is a little metaphysical maybe, but like Vienna, which I love, but Vienna has this kind of smugness to me, like Austrians, like they know they've got it good. And Vienna, usually it's for a number of years topped the ratings as the world's most livable city, according to a couple of different evaluation metrics. And Budapest is not as posh. It's not as smug. It's not as comfortable. So there's kind of, it's a little bit more humble. And that is something that actually strikes me. It's just like you know you don't you don't see people as as dressed up maybe as you do in vienna in budapest so if you if you clue in you can kind of say like yeah you know there there's definitely um some ripples still of those 40 years under communism that they're still kind of coming out of um but if you if you're not paying attention you also probably wouldn't notice them
1: yeah well i need to get back there and see and make my own comparison for myself so and when you were writing your book about the Habsburgs, did you go and stay in Budapest or Vienna? How did you go about researching that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I certainly did some research um, in these countries. A lot of it, though, I could do um, thanks to the, I should I do a shout out. This is back in my days when I was a professor at Seattle University. And thanks to the great interlibrary loan team at the library at Seattle University, I could just get stuff from everywhere. So I didn't have to actually spend years in the archives in Vienna and Budapest. Um, when I was writing that book, but uh, one great thing, um, as I know you know from like guiding, the best way to learn about something is to teach yourself, right? And so I taught myself so much about this part of the world um, from writing that book that then when you go back, it just means so much more. Like, you know the stories, like, ah, that statue, I know exactly who that guy was, why there's a statue of him, why it matters. And I also probably know one or two juicy stories about that guy. And that's the kind of thing, which, which still, I just love like having, having been able to delve into that stuff that now when you go to these places, you just, you understand it on a much deeper level.
1: Well, and that is such an important point because I mean, that's what I think gives me the energy to keep doing this same job after 20 years is that, when you educate people it's just like you've lifted a veil somehow like they they look around themselves and they see crowds and they see souvenir stands and you know it doesn't mean anything because it because really tourists touristic centers could be anywhere and they all kind of have the same vibe but when Mm -hmm. you stand in the middle of a place and yeah and you point to a statue and go hey let me tell you the story about this guy and this thing that he did and it's all stories and that's the thing that's so beautiful about history is that people think oh history is dead and long gone and I'm not into history well are you into soap operas (laughs) (laughs) because I can guarantee you if you're into like your stories on television you're going to really enjoy traveling around Europe and hearing all of these stories so would you say the Habsburgs are like that they're a little bit like a soap opera
0: oh yeah definitely I mean They're actually one of the, as dynasties go, relatively better behaved dynasties. And there's not that much where they're like, you know, stabbing each other in the back. There is a fair bit of sleeping around, including sometimes uncles sleeping with their nieces. But, you know, well, that's come to the book club and you'll and you'll hear more about that. But um, yeah, the, the speaking of like historical like legacies, the Habsburg fingerprints are still all over Budapest and all over uh, Vienna and Prague and all over the entire region. And that um, is another thing, like you say, that when you know this stuff, when you can read it, like you know the stories, then it just makes it so much more meaningful. And one of the things that I love about guiding is that it's not dead history. In fact, you can tell the stories on the spot where it happened and then people like can see it with their own eyes. And just to be able to, even like more recent stuff, to be able to stand on the bank of the Danube in Budapest and to understand what happened in World War II when you have the Nazis camped out on Castle Hill and the Soviet Red Army on the Pest side, the east side of the river at the very end of World War II and they are fighting each other and unfortunately damaging a lot of Budapest. Like you you understand these things and you can feel them more than if you just read about it in a book, right?
1: Well, and that's that's the beauty of travel, is that it's almost like time travel. I always think mm. of, you know, the travels that I do are a little bit recent travel, but a little bit like time travel, because you you walk through any city, and you can kind of feel the different layers of history, if you are informed. So that's the important mm. part, and that's part of the reason that Guide Collective is presenting your book this month, because I think that, you know, while we're sitting at home, and we're waiting to travel again, it's such a great time. To delve into some of these histories that actually will inform you no matter where you go I mean even if you go to Italy the Habsburgs have their fingers in Italy like in Venice and in Florence they have relationships Mm -hmm. there so when you you kind of read about these subjects that are a little bit bigger that's going to inform your travels anywhere I mean what other countries that you might not expect with the Habsburgs have their fingerprints on
0: yeah so like the Netherlands and Belgium um Spain of course but also Portugal um uh they started out in switzerland actually so absolutely. you know that's that's um that's where the original hobbits like their very first castle is actually today in switzerland though they lost that and then involved you go in
1: the william tell story they're involved in the william tell story
0: yeah they are yeah good yeah absolutely good memory um but then you go further east and like you know romania serbia um even what's today like western Ukraine was Habsburg territory once and you go south and of course Slovenia and Croatia uh, Bosnia parts of Serbia you know they they really they're almost everywhere
1: yeah and so I mean it really is one of these things that if you learn about it you can see it everywhere I mean that's mm-hmm. that's the important what you go from the William Tell Overture all the way down into Croatia all the way out down into you know like I said, parts of Italy, I mean, that's the Habsburgs are the ones who put bridges in Venice, for example, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's just so many different things uh, that, that that covers. So it's a good time to learn and a good time to learn about this thing. So how did you even get interested in this? I, I mean,
0: yeah, you have um, a lot of
1: interests in a lot of things you do, like why did you specifically choose that?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I I can definitely credit guiding as one of the inspirations to write this Habsburg book because I would be leading tours in this part of the world and people would say, Ben, can you recommend, like we keep hearing about the Habsburgs because we heard about them in Vienna, we heard about them in Prague, we heard about them in Budapest, we even heard about them in Dubrovnik, like all the way down there. Who are they? And I couldn't recommend one book because the the books that were out there in English, I didn't think were very good about the Habsburgs. So finally, I just said, okay, I guess I need to write that book. Like the book that ties in both the Spanish Habsburgs and kind of golden age Spain and that period to the Austrian Habsburgs and all the connections and in between. Um, and I wanted to, to make the book accessible to people. So it is a scholarly book. Um, like it's it's fairly dense in places. I will totally admit that, but I hope it also, it doesn't require a PhD to, to get it uh, and to understand why this family is so important, what they did, and how you can still see in all along the Danube, you still see their legacy like every day and with every step you take. So that was kind of the inspiration. It's like, let's let's explain this ridiculous, interesting family to people in a way that there's no like good explanation out there right now.
1: And that's interesting that you would find a hole like that because you would think that the Habsburgs would be like covered intensely with all kinds of really great writers talking about them. But I find this all over Europe. You'll find these fantastic stories, or actually all over the world. You find fantastic and interesting stories, but you don't find really easily readable, understandable histories, I think. Because I mean, so many mm-hmm. of, of the scholarly works are just not that interesting to people. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of work for us writers to do to bring the stories up, right?
0: Oh man, there's just, like the the number of books one could write if one had the time and the energy it's it like seriously goes on because there's so many amazing stories to tell that haven't really been told or haven't been told well totally like gosh if only it give me give me an extra life or two and there might be way more books coming out of me
1: but that's the cool thing i mean that's the interesting intersection of being a tour guide and a writer at the same time i mean is that we learn all these stories and then we have our own way of processing and them and telling them that's an engaging way. I mean, that's mm-hmm. our art form is to make inaccessible history engaging. And so becoming oh. a writer is actually just sort of an easy extension from that, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I think so. And well said, I, I, I really like that idea because I think that like being a guide and being a writer, one of the things that's really about is being a teacher. And that's kind of, to me, the the, I don't know what, I mean, Like the spiritual heart of it is like okay yes it's amazing we're getting paid right now to uh stay some fantastic places right and i always laugh that like on the slovenia croatia bosnia tours that i do i always laugh it's like there's multiple days when i'm getting paid to swim in the adriatic right but which then that's amazing but like the spiritual and the kind of the the karmic if you will um contribution is like we're teaching about these places, and I hope people are learning about them. And it's not just about the history, but it's like the connections you make to today and the things that matter to people today, because those connections are, are everywhere. And that that aspect of guiding and and writing as teaching is kind of like, I hope that's kind of my my legacy um, from all this stuff. Hi, there's a more kitties.
1: Oh, uh, this is Isis. Yes.
0: Uh, For her
1: morning, five seconds of pets, and then she wants nothing to do with me. So this is as much as I get out of her for the whole day, but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the thing about being a writer for me is that I I never have even seen myself as a writer. I'm an architect. Like I don't think of myself, my title, Mm -hmm. how, how did I become a writer? And it's because I learned all of these fascinating stories and all these interesting places. And you just have to tell those stories you know, whether that's guidebook writing or whether that's blog writing, however you express mm-hmm. it. I mean, with you, you do a little more academic stuff, but it's just mm-hmm. a really, it's sort of like it builds up in you and you want to tell those stories somehow, you know? So yeah, I agree. I think that that we should go on sabbatical then, and each of us should like have to write a book on sabbatical about something, right? You're on sabbatical though. You're in the Canary Islands. I mean.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's a great idea. And for you, like, How has doing like the Sicily guidebook? How did that change, say, your guiding or thinking about Sicily?
1: Oh my gosh, that was that changed entirely the way I went about guiding Hmm. because I just learned so many more stories. You know, the more reading I did, the more digging I did, the more places I went to that were not on the tourist track, were not on the tour. You know, things that, that you know you just start digging and digging, and you realize that, especially in a place like that with three or 4,000 years of history, you could just choose one tiny little corner and keep digging forever and you'd never find the end of it. Um, so I think when you write a, a, bo- a book about something, about a topic, and I mean, you obviously could relate very strongly to this. You have to learn so much about your topic that you only use a little fragment of the time <laughs> you're writing But when you get there and you actually do a tour it's like I, the only way i can explain it is it feels like breathing or swimming like it feels like breathing underwater because mm-hmm. you get there and you kind of are like oh i haven't been on the island in six months or something but then i get there and everywhere i look i'm like oh that over there is the you know the palace of the the holy roman emperor and over here this is a you know from the spanish inquisition and you just know the stuff and it's not it's not even it, it just it's such an immersive way to live with your knowledge does that make sense
0: yeah, no, totally, because I, I agree 100%, um, especially, you know, when you're, when you're researching a guidebook or, a, or another book, there's so much more, you could say, that doesn't make it into the book, right? But then once you're in these places, and that's one of the great pleasures, I think, also of, like, the, like, you know, personal guiding, is that the stories you couldn't, that didn't make their way into the book or the the museum recommendations or the restaurant recommendations or the whatever it might be that didn't make it into the stuff that got published, then you can just tell people. Then it's like, then you can do the total download dump and anybody who's who's still hungry for it, like there's so much more to give. So that's, as you say, it's like swimming because you just, you you breathe this stuff and, and you can, I don't know what, share it. Um, in different ways when you're actually there with people.
1: Yeah, and what I think is interesting is that the more passionate I become about a subject and the more I learn about it, the more that I feel my groups are in it with me, even if you know, I'm going on for an hour longer than I should have about a certain topic because I just really wanna tell the story. I feel like when you know so much about it and you really feel that story, you can communicate not just the story, but the feeling also, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally.
1: It's pretty cool, but one I, one of the other little side stories I wanted to just mention to everybody is how you got your start in guiding. Because I remember the day you got your start in guiding.
0: Oh, totally. I, t- I tell this story all the time because people always want to know, right? Like, yeah. um, how and um, so I'll tell you as I remember it, and then okay, you correct yourself. me if I get anything wrong. Okay. So as I remember it, it was like within the first month or two that I moved to Seattle back in two thousand three, and you our mutual friend, Brian Wilson, and our, our another former uh, friend, um, Kristen. And I don't remember if anyone else is there, but we were all out at the George and the Dragon pub in Fremont, in Seattle. And I seriously, I do tell this story multiple times a year because people ask, and, and I had just, at that point, finished my PhD a, a few months previously and had just been living in Budapest before I moved back to the US. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with myself because I didn't think I really wanted to go into academia, blah, 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 long story short. You said, Ben, you've uh, lived in Europe. You speak some languages and you have teaching experience. You ought to send your resume into Rick Steves. And I'm like, Rick who? And the rest, as they say. I mean, do you do you do you remember it differently, or how, what's? No, what's no, your- I I remember
1: that. I I yeah. It, it was if it was the judge and the dragon. Yeah, because we used to do pub trivia. You were on our mm-hmm, pub trivia mm-hmm, team because mm-hmm. we had this like badass pub trivia team in the days before I had kids. We'd meet every week, and it would have kind of a rotating cast, but it was mostly like tour guides. And I loved like Mm. academics and tour guides because we'd always really do well if we had academics or tour guides, obviously. so (laughs) And actually, Andrew, who's a mutual friend of ours, he was on our pub trivia team as well back then in the early 2000s occasionally Mm -hmm. so yeah so we'd always have this interesting group of people and we have beers and we talk and it was just really fun and yeah and Kristen made a couple of like guest appearances on the pub trivia team and yeah then it was we we sort of pressured you so we dragged you Mm -hmm. into tour guiding life because I had been guiding at that point for about three years and Mm -hmm. I just loved my job I had left architecture for it and it's like you know Get off the, the career train, my friend, and come over where the, the the life is a little sunnier and enjoy teaching out in the open air. Yeah, I remember that and it was it was so funny because it's like those little conversations you don't really think of at the time. It's like, huh, that actually was had a big impact.
0: <laughs> totally. Yeah. And and the thing you said about like the career path. That I mean, I I never in a way I never, if you'd asked me, I don't know, in year two of my PhD, um, gonna like maybe become a European tour guide someday, Ben. It's like what? But then you do it and it's like, oh my God, like you're you're out there, you're not, and no offense to anybody who who has this kind of work life, but you're not like sitting under fluorescent lights in an office cubicle all day. You're working really hard, but you're out there on your feet and in amazing locations and helping people understand and appreciate th- th- things. So it's and sharing your knowledge. So it's hard, hard work but it's also totally addictive because of the freedom and the just like, I don't know how, how unorthodox it is compared to a nine to five. So I totally, when you taste that drug, it's not for everybody, but when you taste that drug, uh, it's, it's hard to give it up. And I have to like point at you and said, Sarah's the one who got me hooked on it.
1: <laughs> I'm a pusher. <laughs> exactly. You betcha, yeah. Because I was, I, I feel the same way. It's like once you get a taste of that freedom, and for me, I wanted to be an architecture history professor. That was actually my goal. I was going to go back and get my doctorate in architectural history, and I wanted to teach in an academic setting and work on historical like buildings that re- renovating historical buildings. That was my whole career path. And it's so uh, funny because like as soon as you get out in the open and you start tour guiding, you go okay, I'm doing that thing I always wanted to do, which is to teach architectural history, but I'm doing it in the buildings Mm -hmm. and, you know, okay, so I'm with tourists rather than students, but tourists are also students, you know, and you and I struggled a little bit, I would say in my mid thirties, just with the the idea that I wasn't doing something important, you know, Mm -hmm. you are doing things important at the same time. But for me, having Mm -hmm. given up being an architect, I felt like, man, I could have like been a famous architect. I could have done all these things, but Looking back on, you know, 21 years or whatever of guiding, it just, I enjoyed every day, even the bad days Mm. I enjoyed. And Mm -hmm. if I had stayed sitting at that desk under the fluorescent lights, I don't think I'd remember a day of the last 20 years. Whereas like my life is a rich tapestry of experience because of it. Don't you think?
0: Oh yeah, totally. And I'm, it's, uh, I'm really glad you said, we just said, because it's something that I think about too, like, um is like tour guiding is teaching the way we do is it like enough in terms of a contribution to the world and in terms of like status or whatever the kind of you know keeping up with the joneses kind of career stuff that a lot of people in in the north north america and europe have um and sometimes i wonder it's like meh i don't know it's not as prestigious as some jobs but there's a I don't know if you've ever met in Dubrovnik uh, this great guy Roberto di Lorenzo who's who's a brilliant brilliant man who has you know law degrees from he has a like one university degree from, from uh, Venice a law degree from from Vienna and then another degree from Zagreb and he's he's, he's brilliant and he so he could have been this big time lawyer in in Austria for example um, but he said Ben my. I'm making a bigger contribution and I affect more people's lives by being a tour guide, by being a really good tour guide in Dubrovnik, than I ever would have in a law office. And he's like, yeah, you know what, that's right. You were totally right. And, uh, and that is the kind of gift and the contribution. So I hope you feel that too, right? Like you don't, no regrets about, oh, I could have been famous architect, professor, because it's like, I am actually having a fantastic impact on people, hopefully by guiding and writing, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I look at, I, I look around Seattle sometimes at buildings that I designed or I had a hand in designing and I'm proud of my contribution. And I feel like I, I did that to the point where I felt like I had not mass you don't master architecture, but I had made enough of a contribution that I felt like I had, ha- I had had my say in that business. Mm. And um, yeah, I could have, I could have owned my own firm. I could have done a lot of interesting things, but um, there was a woman a couple years ago, I remember that, um, who had Sicilian heritage, and she had felt ashamed in her gro- growing up of being Sicilian, because it was just mm. the culture, like they were not considered to be the best kind of people where she lived, mm. and I was like, look, we need to have a talk, <laughs> and I sat yeah. down, and I explained her, and I talked to her about kind of the noble history of, the, of Sicilian, I mean, she was in tears at the end, and she's like, I really feel like I'm in touch with my culture more. And I'm like, yeah, that's the, that's what I'm here for is to explain to you and teach you about that. Uh, you know, I don't know, just little moments like that. Another one was a student who, you know, I spent a lot of time with on one of the family tours and she ended up wanting to go into school to be an architect, which was really like, yeah, I mean, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, I really did have that crisis. I remember sitting down with our former boss one day and just saying, mm-hmm. "I don't know what I'm doing here because I feel like, is this enough? Is it mm-hmm. enough to just enjoy what you do and love every day your job, but not be famous? <laughs> like not do like build the big buildings and make the mm-hmm. traditional contribution?" And I think that for me was the the thing I had to the, to leap over was mm-hmm. it's okay not to make a traditional contribution. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, totally. No, I'm, I'm, I identify with everything, everything you've just said, and I'm glad that you have found your piece, or if that's the right way to describe it, because I think it's true, right? Like, it's, uh, you make a contribution as a great guide or travel writer, uh, that's nothing to sneeze at, even if it doesn't sometimes get the, I don't know, the prestige points of like, well, look at this building, which I designed, or whatever, right? So that's, that's, we can't get wrapped up in, in some of those obnoxious little head games that sometimes the uh, society wants us to play
1: well and there's also i think a, a huge responsibility in a sense for being a guide because i think of this one gentleman that came on a tour maybe 10 years ago who had saved his entire life to go to mm. italy because he had italian heritage and this was his one shot he was never going to come again he mm. came on he actually got a tattoo he was in his 70s and he'd gotten an italian tattoo before he'd left <laughs> He came on the tour, he had a marvelous time. He was such a lovely gentleman. He died like less than a year later. And wow. I, I think about him a lot because I think that was the thing he had waited his whole life to do. And what a responsibility and what a what a honor it is. Mm. You're the guide who maybe this is the only shot they've got at seeing some of these great things they've always dreamed of. And, mm-hmm. so, you know, I think that it's, That's what's sort of changed my point of view about our work is that we are doing something important and maybe it's on a smaller scale. Maybe I'm not building like the greatest building, you know, in the city that's going to be remembered Mm. for everybody. That's okay. Because I'm, I think we affect lives on a more personal individual level.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can actually see it too, like the feedback loops. And I can even say from my own various work experiences, like in my time working on these big projects with the British Mm -hmm. government, for example, or even some some of the other like projects I've done with large NGOs and stuff, it's stuff that's important, but the feedback loops are so extended because like you're like, I was helping redesign these programs for technical and vocational education in the UK, a few years back, stuff that matters. It's going to help a lot of people, but you don't see it because it's like, it's years before you get the feedback loops of like, okay, yeah, this helped get more young people uh, these kind of really important employability skills. But like with that guy, the guy you mentioned who had saved up all his life to go to Italy. And then, I don't know, I'm I'm imagining, maybe this, this wasn't the exact case, but like that first night you're on Piazza Navona in Rome and he's probably like in fantasy land, right? Like he's living his dream right there and you can see it on his face. And that happens all the time guiding where you just get to see these people loving the experience, learning something new, uh, and it's happening right there in front of you, and that is totally priceless. That kind of chance to to really see, okay, not to be even selfish about it, but that's the kind of impact I'm having. That is that I mean, my heart, such as it is, my little my little shriveled heart is even now beating beating faster.
1: <laughs> well, and that's what's hard is I miss that so much, you know. But I think by like even the conversation we're having right now, I think it's cool that we're able to use the technology to and with the Guide Collective to continue doing that and at least helping people kind of bridge this gap and learning about the world or maybe people that can't travel you know it's a really fun way that we're doing that so um so i wanted to get back just a little bit to our our topic our actual
0: Mm, topic mm,
1: (laughs) we strayed a little bit but i think it is fun to talk about because i don't think you and i've ever talked about that about how i I dragged you kicking and screaming into this profession
0: (laughs) it's been yeah it's been a few years back. I had hair back when that whole thing started. Oh, yeah.
1: you did. I forgot about mm-hmm. that. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, Dale, the tour guide not you make your hair fall out.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And it's gotten gray, too. How did that happen? My god.
1: It's a gray hair for each uh, disgruntled tour member. That's what it is, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> for okay. every bad cup of coffee, for <laughs> yeah, every exactly. like late night. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are not, you live in Prague now? Where do you even mm-hmm. live? You, you kind of live the life of a nomad, right?
0: I have been nomadic for a couple of years, but Prague is where I've, I'm putting down roots again because it was time to, I was partly exploring like, where do I want to live, right? Like I I love Central Europe, but I love Spain. I love Pacific Northwest. And I decided, yeah, you know what? Um, the best combination for me right now is Central Europe and hence, hence Prague.
1: And so why is that? Why do you choose Central Europe to live?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, there's another, um, weird metaphysical answer to that, which is, I I literally did explore a bunch of different places, including uh, Portugal, um, Colombia, even, um, you know, like Romania. And it's just, I don't know, I'm sure, I know you identify with this because it's partly why you um, have devoted your life to Italy, but like, you just, you click with a place, right? And there's something about Central Europe all the diversity but as we were saying earlier there's also this stuff that it shares it's a kind of cultural i don't know what hole or or um the affinities and i just like i feel at home like I, i should have been born in central europe i just i just get it there and even like portugal i love i seriously considered moving to portugal for several reasons and i love portugal but it's like i just click in central europe and i don't in in a way i don't click with portugal
1: Yeah, I I feel you because yeah, Italy for me is the same way where it just it's always felt like home and Rome in particular Sicily in particular both of those places just they feel like home to me and it's, Mm. it's weird being here for so long it's weird not being able to be in those places because you I I feel a little despondent sometimes it's like Mm. and I think to myself I'm in my own home, (laughs) but I think I want to go home, can I go home please when can I go home you know mm-hmm. so it is it's weird to have a, a place be a home to you that that you are not from and you're not even yeah. like related to that culture you're totally. not You're European right
0: no I have I have no blood and you, you don't have any Italian blood in you do you?
1: I'm Slovenian no, yeah. half Slovenian and yeah. half Irish
0: yeah right I got I mean I, I'm mostly Scottish so it's like there's no there's no heritage connections but it's just like Sometimes the universe aligns in a way that you like, you slot here, Ben or Sarah, and that here happens to be someplace you, your family has no real connection to.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, but I mean, what a time we live in when we can actually do that thing where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, I'm going to live between, you know, the Pacific Northwest and Italy and maybe also Southeast Asia, and we'll just kind of see where it goes. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of crazy. So, what took you out to the Canary Islands? You're in the Canary Islands now. Uh, where I are am. the Canary Islands? Let's start with that because I'm stupid. Tell me where the Canary you Islands do. are.
0: Yeah, so the Canary Islands are part of Spain and they are off the coast of Africa, kind of like if you went directly west from Morocco, they're floating out here in the Atlantic. Um, and they're known as like Europe's Hawaii, which is a really good comparison because they're these absolutely spectacularly beautiful islands, volcanic islands, sticking up out of the ocean with a, that are much balmier uh, climate-wise than most of, you know, certainly kind of uh, Western, Central, and Northern Europe um, all year round. So that's where they are. And I came here because uh, this is this is the not so happy part of the story is that anybody who's followed the news may have seen that for many months, the Czech Republic, where I live, has had the worst COVID situation in Europe, like the highest numbers. Uh, the government totally bungled the response. Um, And as of March 1st, like the numbers were so high that they invented a new, even stricter level of lockdown. um, And that came into force on March 1st. And I was kind of, before that happened, I was like, you know, my rent runs out at the end of February. My work, because I had some other projects that I'm doing right now, like it's totally location dependent. So like, I don't have to be here. And there's direct flights from Prague to Tenerife at the island where I'm on and I just said you know adios Czech Republic hola España (laughs) and came here and you know I to be honest like I I wrestled with it a little bit because of the ethics of travel right now and was it a good idea and dot 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 but I convinced myself not surprisingly um yeah it's okay it's okay to travel I get you have to get a, a negative um COVID test to come in and I'm so glad I did because you know, the weather, it's, it's like mid 70s every day, sunny, volcano, like scenery, great, great hiking. Um, the sea's a little cool this time of year, but it's still nice enough to go to take a dip. I was in there yesterday. Um, so it was, it was just a great way, not only of kind of escaping a fairly grim COVID situation, in the Czech Republic, but also just like lopping a month and a half off winter.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm not feeling so sorry for you. Although in Seattle, we are getting a little bit nicer. Spring in Seattle is actually pretty awesome. It's really Mm -hmm. great. What I'm finding, and we talked about this before we started going live, is that it seems to me like a lot of the American expats that we know, who live not just in Prague, but in Europe in general, are all thinking about coming back to the US now. (laughs) My, Mm. how the tables have turned.
0: (laughs) No kidding. Yeah. I mean, like summer last year, summer last year, I was in the Czech Republic and they had done such a good job with the first wave that like life was almost normal. Like I, you could go to concerts. I went to the opera, you go to the theater, museums were open, you could eat in restaurants. It's like, wow, good job, Czech Republic. Whereas the U S was a dumpster fire, right. As we probably all remember. And now, I mean, there's a very obvious reason why this has all changed. And it's, I mean, we can I can call it out, and that is a new administration in Washington D.C., which has its act together, and the vaccine vaccine program is like really going well in the U.S. and the EU is talking about bungle that it, has just messed it up. So yeah, the tables have turned, and, and it's like I see I see like old friends, like exactly my age, like you, who are due for their vaccinations. I've already gotten them or going to get them asap, and like I'm in the Czech health system. I'm I'm entitled to a vaccination for the Czech health system, but realistically that might not happen until the autumn.
1: That's insane. So, yeah, I've got yeah. mine. I waited, I waited in line. I did not skip the line. I know a lot of people found little loopholes to get in there mm-hmm. and skip the line, but I have waited my turn because I think that's ethically correct. So my turn is up on Wednesday. So that's when I get to go and have my first shot. And then where I live in Seattle, I think my dad, I'm, I could be wrong. I thought it was May 1st. My dad's saying April 15th, anybody over the age of mm-hmm can get a, mm-hmm. a vaccine. So yeah, we're, uh, I'm shocked, shocked actually by the efficiency of the American government. I was so like last summer going, I'm leaving the US forever. I'm never coming back. I'm going to move to Italy. The kids better pack their bags, you mm-hmm. know, and now it's like, oh man, I'm so glad that I'm a dual citizen. <laughs> hmm you know, and there is that advantage being an American with multiple passports, because then you can kind of go around. Do you have other passports? I don't even know if you do. I
0: know I don't. I have, I have, to, I have to jump through the hoops to get a residence permit um, to, be in, uh, to be in the EU. But thankfully, thankfully, I've got it. So it's like, I don't want to come home. I mean, no, it's great. It's great. But I, I, it, you have that advantage that you can easily have uh, one foot in both camps. And that's a huge, huge advantage.
1: It's an advantage and a disadvantage, which is something Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that, that is a talk. We should have like a round table about that, about what it's Mm -hmm. like to be split in two, because I Mm -hmm. think it's, it's great. I mean, I have a richer life and a richer experience than I could ever have asked for. But on the other hand, it makes you a real oddball. Um, Mm -hmm. It makes Mm -hmm. you really like, I mean, just as an example, going out on dates is really awkward because it's like, I'm kind of Italian, actually. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) After all these years, like there's so many things I do, I don't even realize. I went out with somebody a couple of weeks ago and at the end of the date, I just like kissed him on each cheek because I was like, I just do that. And it's like, oh, I Mm -hmm. shouldn't do that stuff because that's not American. And it's hard to figure out how to exist in this world when you are from, when you're American, but you're steeped in all these other cultures, right?
0: Yeah, totally. The whole like bicultural or multicultural phenomenon. And I mean, the way for me having lived outside the U.S. now for the last six years like I find that I'm losing connection to certain things like there's there's certain like pop culture stuff that has come along in the U.S. like I don't just I don't know what it is anymore right and that's pretty and I even find that with with tour groups obviously it hasn't happened in the last year-ish but it's like
1: you, you need teenagers to, in your life. That's the problem. Yeah, it's not, it's yes. not that you're American, it's your age. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that definitely has something to do with it. But I know yeah. that like, I have to like tell people like I am, I'm I'm not sure the stuff that's going on in the U.S. right now. And so keep me some slack because I'm just not up to speed on some things, so.
1: Ah, that's okay. That's why I yeah. have teenagers around. They tell me all of the different lingo and all of that. Apparently, did you know that the way to say something is good is you use the word Pog. Do you remember what pog was when we were kids? I do. Yeah, like a pog was like a little round thing, right? Yeah, yeah. it was. It was like a it was the the top of a milk bottle, like they were mm, wooden tops mm-hmm. for milk bottles we used and we traded them. there. That was like a fad in the 80s. Yeah, so mm. my kids now say like um like McDonald's pog. Oh, it's a good McDonald's hamburger you're having. I know. I'm like <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, no idea. Well, we're almost out of time, but before we go, I wanted to um, just ask you because since you and Andrew and I have been friends forever, we're going to start working together on our own tours. I don't even know what you're working on with Andrew. What are you working on with him? Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, so um, one of the fun things we do right now is this Eastern Approaches podcast, which if anybody um, hasn't encountered that. Who listening? Who hasn't encountered that? Maybe on the on the Guide Collective webpage. Andrew, who lives in Slovenia and runs a tour company out of Slovenia, and I do a, a podcast called Eastern Approaches every so often. We don't we do not do a new one every week. Um, but it's all about, like, the parts of, of Europe that Andrew and I love, which is the everything from kind of, I don't know what, uh, former Iron Curtain East. So it's Central Europe because Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovenia are all Central Europe, but then going East from there. And so it's, you know, we he and I riff on culture, history, politics, food, whatever the heck, we have our rants, you know, about stuff. But so it's a, I, I hope it's a fun podcast for people who might be interested in both practical travel tips to any kind of Eastern and Central Europe places, but also just like, oh, here's here's a weird story about culture or here's like Andrew live streaming from Albania as he did a couple of months ago. So that's, that's one thing we're working on. And then, uh, you know, we have... Um, megalomaniacal uh, plans about certain tour itineraries that may happen someday. And one of the super cool ones, which I would love if this actually, if this gets off the ground, Um, I hope I'm not um, speaking out of turn here, but uh, there's this super cool idea he has for a tour, which is uh, like Ottoman conquests. So like starting in Istanbul and then going west to like all through like Southeastern Europe and, and finishing in Budapest actually, to like kind of trace how far the Ottoman Turks got in the 1600s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. It'd be an amazing, amazing tour. So so we have fun ideas like that, that we're batting around too.
1: That is such a cool thematic tour. I would totally go on that, but that's probably not till 2023. I don't think Andrew's got yeah. that yet. but you guys are, aren't you doing what, Poland next year or something?
0: Yeah, I am not entirely up uh, up on that latest detail. There's, we've been talking about, yeah, we've been talking about uh, uh, some of the Croatia, Bosnia, Slovenia stuff that he normally does. Poland might happen. Uh, we were even talking an idea um, for some, like, undiscovered Czech and Slovakia kind of stuff. So nothing ready to be... Um, marketed yet is my is my uh impression but lots of fantastic ideas and things that would be super super cool um like small group way to way to like get away from the crowds and see some really amazing bits of central europe that you wouldn't find on your own
1: Yeah, and that's the whole point. Like, I think that I'm so excited about all of the like Adventures with Sarah tours, Adventures with Sarah and friends. We're going to have to call it something like that. Because basically, what I'm doing is inviting people like you and Andrew and all of our other colleagues to just like imagine what is that tour you've always wanted to lead? Like, what is that tour? We all have that tour we've Um, always wanted to lead that we could never get anybody to sponsor us. So, heck, let's just do it, man. Like, Mm -hmm. what is that thing you've always wanted to do? Let's just do that thing, I think.
0: Totally. Yeah. Live the dream.
1: Yeah, we're going to live the dream. Well, my friend, you have to go get ready for your book club. Um, mm-hmm. so, so if you guys who are watching on Facebook, if you're interested, it's at in a half an hour. Is that right? yeah exactly in a half an hour over on the guide collective facebook page uh ben is going to be introducing he is not only the sponsor of this next month he's going to be the one who's leading the discussions he's also the author so we thought that fran was amazing by bringing hemingway's grandson but now we've actually got the actual author leading the book discussion so i mean that's even more impressive actually isn't it and could you tell people the name of your book and how to find it
0: yeah, so the book is called The Habsburgs, The History of the Dynasty. You can find it on Amazon if you go there. Of course, we recommend buy it from your local bookstore if you can to support them. Um, but it's an e- you can get it hardcover, e-back, or e ebook, paperback, whatever. And um, if you've got the time, check out uh, the introduction that I'll do in half an hour for the, for the book club. But even if you can't make that, then go to the Guide Collective webpage and you can kind of find out a bit more about what the book's about and and some of the cool events and uh and content we're planning for the next couple weeks which is all things habsburg
1: yeah and as it turns out adventures with sarah and guide collective are kind of like walking the same path this next week uh because we're going to be covering the danube we're going to be covering prague we're going to be covering lots of places that the habsburgs were um, so, to, sort of as a way to, to jumpstart uh, the Habsburg Book Club, we'll have lots of associated stuff going on this week. So, Aunt, um, Reed's going to be with us a bit this week with uh, friends of ours from that whole Habsburg area. Um, so, I am actually going to go buy your book then because I'm going on vacation on Friday. And I thought that is the perfect thing. I would love to read. I'm such a nerd. I don't read trashy romance novels on the beach anymore I did I used to when I was in like my teens but now my trashy romance novels are historical ones <laughs> exactly nice Wow. there better hey, be some trashy romance in that book bed I'll be disappointed if there's 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 some
0: juicy stories I mean it's pretty it is pretty dense but but there's some juicy stories for sure
1: excellent all right well, I am looking forward to listening to you in a half hour over on Guide Collective. So again, this is Ben Curtis, my friend of many, many years, who I ripped out of his academic career and threw him into being a tour guide, corrupted him completely. Mm. I'm your yeah, I'm like your meth dealer, right?
0: Totally, exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's man. You know, let's we don't want to push that that uh, comparison too far because then like, don't the meth dealers usually? Uh, now it's time. It's come time to pay up, Curtis. No, I don't know. So. Um,
1: well, you are paying up because I forced okay. you out to, to be my my uh, slave at Guide Collective, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I'm I'm very Sicilian about it. I haven't asked for a repayment yet, but there will be someday that I might. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm. All right, my friend. It has been an absolute uh, joy talking to you today. I can't believe I have I haven't had you on here before. That just seems crazy. Mm. That's why. Yeah. Um, But again, Everybody Eastern Approaches podcast, that's Ben and my good friend, Andrew. They are hilarious, and they talk about really weird, interesting stuff. And please go buy his book. So thanks, Ben.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Great to see you, Sarah. More soon.
1: Yes. Actually, I'd love for you to take your camera out and show us around the Canary Islands. So I will await that little clip, clip of video, okay?
0: I should do that. I should do that. Okay, take care, everybody. Thanks so much.